Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Hello, and welcome to another in the episode of Sam Talks Technology. I'm joined today by two amazing guests, Minta Dial and Andrew Grill, two amazing podcasters as well, and two very special gentlemen that I've got to know most recently. Um, Minta, how are you? Nice great. to meet you. And great to be on the show. Andrew and yourself. Sam, good to be on the show, uh, finally, and nice to see you in the background there. <laughs> yeah, this is the rough look, so thank God I've got a face for radio, as they say. Minter, now let's start off with you. Let's introduce you uh, to people. I love doing this because I get to find out more about people. We, we, we tend to meet people, but we stay superficial. How are you? Nice to meet you. What's your current project? And sometimes you go on LinkedIn and you delve deeper. So you've got a lovely, interesting background. Eaton, as in the UK version of Eaton, that's strange. So why aren't you Prime Minister? That's my first question to you. Yale, so you know, you weren't setting the bar too high for yourself. And then you joined the board of last minute. Recently, though, you've written a book which we'll talk more about called The Artificial Empathy. So Minter, tell us a little bit about artificial empathy and, and what you do today. Well, I like to think of myself as a connector of dots, connecting what's happening, observing what's happening out there, but also connecting people and also elevating the debate. And, and I try to elevate the debate through the different ways of telling stories, which include making a film, writing books, and essentially speaking on stage and try to stir the pot, if not the shit, and, and get people to think differently about what's going on and observe themselves even through maybe self-empathy as to how they can accept and be more a force of change for good as well. So that's the overall pitch. And then after that, I've, I've uh, written three books, published three books. Uh, one was a uh, testament to the Second World War, The Last Ring Home. And that's also the name of the documentary film I did. Then the second one was called Future Proof. And it's all about disruptive technologies. And the last published book is called Artificial Empathy, How to Put Empathy and Heart into Your Business and AI. And, and actually, to be exact, Sam, I also have a, a new manuscript that's about to be finished and hopefully will come out at the end of the year, uh, thanks to Kogan Page, and that's on uh, new forms of leadership. Excellent. And we'll be talking more about your book, uh, New Forms of Work as well, post-COVID-19, as we go through this podcast. Andrew, welcome. Uh, Andrew is currently at Napier Capital, but he's known best as the Practical Futurist. He is an Antipodean who came over here 14 years ago. Andrew, welcome. Now, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. Yeah, I've been in London 14 years, came over with a startup. I've got a, an interesting background like Minters, started as an engineer, worked for large companies in Australia, 12 years of startups, six different startups from the mobile space through to online property and uh, social media. More recently, I was a global managing partner at IBM in their consulting practice, but for the last 20 years, a bit like Minter, I've been speaking publicly, and that's a focus of mine at the moment. So I would normally be on stage uh, talking to key corporates about why they might be disrupted. And we'll probably talk a little bit about disruption. But I, I call myself the practical futurist because I try and see short to midterm. While I did not predict COVID-19, I think we will need to have some predictions about what might happen on the other side. So I'm sure we'll talk about that today. But thanks for having me on. Pleasure. You should watch the film Contagion. You would have got it. <laughs> Gates. Yes. Now, 
Minta, let's start off with your book that you recently published called Artificial Empathy. What is the background to it? What, what, what was your thinking through writing that book? Well, I, I, in my history, I worked for L'Oreal for 16 years, and so I had major roles running businesses and, and the subsidiaries and, and people in general. And it, it was my conviction that empathy is a really useful uh, skill to have, not necessarily something I always exercised. And, and part of the reason why I wrote the book was I, I recognized that I could be more empathic. Then the question is, well, once you write a book, then you're going to start to be held to a very high standard about being empathic. So what I wanted to do is, is figure out a practical road for introducing more empathy into business and artificial intelligence. The issue, of course, is that you can't, uh, A, teach empathy. Two, you can't have empathy all the time. So you need to find a practical road and then orchestrate that in business. And that's what I tried to do in artificial empathy. And did this have anything to do with the fact at Yale that you studied in female empathy as well? Well, I, so that's a great question, Sam. It's true. I, my minor was women's studies. And back in 1985, that was definitely a, a neophyte area. And for sure, at that time, I was the, the only male in the classroom. And that experience actually opened my mind terribly. Because, first of all, being the only male, <laughs> inevitably with the other 12 women in the class, you so what do you think? Okay. And the you was, you know, for the other 49. You, you answered for the whole of the male population. <laughs> right. For the man kind. And anyway, so that, that opened me up to also what is it like to feel like in a minority and, and being in women's studies, they also actually explore all minorities in general, not just gender. And so that opened me up into a whole lot of things. And, and I wanted to tell you, Sam, I, I've just done a survey online about a thousand answers. And it's interesting that women will naturally score themselves higher than men in empathy. So I think there is a, also a predisposition and a, certainly a higher attention to the concept when it comes to women. So are we seeing more empathy being rolled out into business because we're beginning to see more women in business? You know, the glass ceiling, women on the board, whether it's through the need to have diversity and they're being forced onto the board or just generally through talent making it to the board. But is that because women are now part of the conversation more at a senior level that you're seeing this? So I don't have any evidence that can say that, but I do think anecdotally that is one aspect of it. The second is that I think there's more and more people who've cottoned on to this idea because we've moved into digital. And the reason why this is sort of a, an obvious next step is that by, by having digital, people have all of a sudden said, we have to transform, we were disrupted. And, oh, there's a thing called the customer. And the customer has a voice. And actually, they can complain and socialize and so on. So we've, we've got to an idea, well, actually, we need to design things for a customer experience. And the piece in that that helps customer experience, if you're a designer, is obviously empathy. And, and it turns out that the people who are actually delivering the customer experience are your employees. And it turns out that if you want to have super motivated, high energy employees, empathy is a great way to drive that. The ultimate game of that whole story is actually having purpose. But in any event, you've got those two things. And the third, so the first is more women present to more usefulness for empathy in today's digitalized world. And the third is a recognition on so many levels of a lack of empathy. We've got so many different studies showing from the young 
to society, to in business, an issue with empathy, that I think it's maybe a, a, a signal to everyone to say, well, we do need to up our empathic muscle. Okay. So how do companies bring empathy into the workplace? Well, I, I, the first thing is with great self-awareness. Because many, many people are now getting onto the idea that empathy is a useful piece within design, within making customer service better, and making employee engagement better. So they're sort of getting intellectually into it. But the self-awareness piece is actually understanding, A, just how empathic are you in the first place? And be careful about writing, we're an empathic organization on the wall, when you might not have that quality or ever even potential quality there are examples of that so let's call it empathy washing is is a risk my my worry is is empathy going to be the new diversity is it the tick box that companies are going to put up to say look we are doing the right things but now for example at this special time when we're seeing i never knew this word before furloughing is now becoming the the, the new norm how much empathy are employers really showing to their staff if they're furloughing them or and and i've heard from a number of people that furloughing is now a bit like the gdpr the great unsubscribe that as i called it it's the great unemployment as in yeah we had 100 people before but actually we'll take 80 percent of them back and we'll furlough 20 percent permanently um, right. so it's you know how much empathy does empathy go out the window as a tick box when when the shit hits the fan like we have now, or is it something that has to be a core value for a company, whether it's good or bad? Right. So a rich question, Sam. So first of all, empathy and diversity, by the way, are entirely linked because if you want to have an ethical construct and have a diverse attitude towards your employment, empathy is a key thing because if you don't employ or deploy empathy then you're going to struggle to understand what it's like to be somebody in a different color skin a different gender and so on especially when it's a white male who's running it as far as my observation with regard to empathy in today's situation there are some companies that are definitively more programmed to be empathic but it's not really the company that's doing it right because it's going to be down to the individual's are, are dis displaying it. You, you, your company isn't empathic. It's the people within the organization that are. <laughs> Although you can say, as I did a post about this a couple of weeks ago, how some companies are communicating. Well, there's the, the dry institutional versions. There's the ones where the bosses are able to cry. And there are the other ones where they have made total abstraction of what's going on and are still sending out, hey, listen, we got 40% off on this really, really unnecessary shiny dress. Seriously not being empathetic at all to the exactly. situation. But, but who drives this then? Does it start with the CEO? Do you have a chief empathy officer? I mean, where, where do we start? How does this core value come to a company or does it come from the bottom up? Well, it has to start from the top in the end of the day, naturally you can have pods and be business units who are being empathic, but reality is this has, this is a strategic element, just like diversity or digital transformation. If the boss or the top table doesn't get it, it's not going to happen throughout. It may happen in pockets, but it's not going to be as certainly uh, robust and congruent unless it's done at the top. So the, the, as I mentioned at the beginning, Sam, it's this notion of being self-aware. How, 
likely is it that you are actually empathic and how far do you want to go with it? Once you have that sort of self-awareness understanding, you need to then think about it, I think, according to strategy. What do you, what do you really need to do? That will tie it into a, a strategic imperative. So let's say you wanna, you've decided that, oh, we have a problem. I mean, let's say just put aside COVID for a second and say, well, my issue is my, the efficiencies of my sales team. Right, so that's my, my main worries for the next 18 months. I want to get my sales teams to be more efficient. Okay. Well, then the question is, how can empathy participate in that? Of course, it's not going to be the only thing. But there you have an application that's linked to strategy. And by, if, if that's well done, then the entire team will be on board because it's linked to the strategy. It, it, it's, it's, you could call it tactical, but I think it's a way to really drive it in. And of course, in the end of the day, when a company is empathic, it, it's broken down into language and behaviors at the, at the micro level in the little moments. And another key point is that when you're trying to put empathy into the organization, don't focus on empathy, which is the major make I, mistake I've seen. Focus on empathy as the way to drive more business because that's external focusing. So it's sort of like saying to your slaves around you, hey, you guys, you better be nice to the, the clients, huh? Whip, whip, whip. And yet, you know, so how are they on earth going to treat their customers if you don't treat them well? So you need to think of it more as a system within the organization first before you start deploying it, per se, towards the outside. Andrew? I think at the moment we're, we're probably in the large, world's largest work-from-home social experiment. And for a lot of managers, I think they're now going to see the perspective of their employees. So people that, as, as Minta says, we need to be more empathetic. But if you say to your manager, I want to work from home because I have some childcare issues, they might go, oh, not again. But now they've been home for weeks, if not months, and they've had to deal with their own family issues. and They've had to deal with things at home. They will see firsthand what it's like. And I think maybe empathy will be forced on some people, not that you can become empathetic, but they will be sympathetic to the situation because they've seen it firsthand and they've seen what it's like to have kids running around and being distracted. So I'm hoping what comes out of this is that we don't go back to the, the old ways of doing things. We actually build in empathy because without having to say to your boss, you now know what it's like to work from home. They go, yeah, I get it. I understand. I'm going to change. I'm going to change the way we're doing things and be a more sympathetic, empathetic manager. So maybe one of the positive things to come out of this really topsy-turvy time is that we'll be forced to be empathetic. Yeah, so that, that brings us nicely on, Andrew, to we are going to be in this self-isolation period. We don't know how much longer. Could be weeks, could be months. The economy itself is dying in, in, in many pockets, but also we're seeing models that you and Minter and I have talked about for a long time you know, death of the high street potentially accelerated. We're seeing UBI, we're seeing home working, online conferencing. As a futurologist, post-COVID-19, what do you think the landscape will be? Will we just, just rush back to the office? Great, I'm out, back, here we are. Let's all get around the water cooler and tell each other boring stories about COVID-19 and how we survived the war. Or will we change? Will we actually stay? Will the change stay and will we make a difference? So I think there's two ways to answer that. I think there will be a natural tendency to go back to business as usual, race back to the office, as you say, and, and, and do it the same way that we've done it. 
I talk a lot about disruption and I never hoped that we would have disruption as such a huge case study to, to look back on. But I see disruption as an opportunity for change. So I would hope that in the weeks and months where we are furloughed, we are working from home, all those sort of things, we're also thinking about what can we do differently when the doors are flung open again. Look at an example, Primark, one of the high street retailers here. I was amazed that they do not have an online strategy. They have closed all of their doors and their revenue is now exactly zero because you cannot buy online from them. If I was someone at Primark right now, I'd be using this thinking time to be rapidly saying, how can we get up a fulfillment system? How can we run e-commerce? How can we plug this in so that we're not going to left behind again? Because heaven forbid, if there's a second wave and we have to isolate again, companies will be left behind. So see this as an opportunity. Accelerate the digital strategy. The fact that everything is now a pure play digital company, pretty much everyone out there, it's pure play digital. They've been forced into that situation. I did a podcast the other week and I suggested maybe you should be keeping a journal. What's worked, what hasn't worked while you've been at home. I think we'll see a hybrid of people not wanting to race back to the office. I'm asked a lot of times, what is the future of work? And I think it comes down to three things, people, place, and purpose. Let's look at the middle P, place. The moment the place of work is our dining room table. Do I want to race back to work? Maybe I want to have some thinking time. It may be that I don't want to work from home but I want to work away from the office. Many of my friends who have never worked from home before, and I've literally helped them set up their 19-inch monitors and their laptops because they didn't know how to do it. They've said, I'm being far more productive at home because I can get stuff done. So maybe we'll have a hybrid where people say, I want to work away from the office. I just don't want to work at home, but I want to have the flexibility. And so we should be using this time to say, what are the changes that we can implement now the Primark example, what can we build in when we go back? And as the government is going to have to work out an exit strategy and a ramp up strategy, what is our ramp up strategy? And I, I, I'm not going to use the word digital anymore because if you're not thinking about having a digital strategy, a strategy that involves an online component, you're going to be dead. The high street, my high street here in London, every there's one for every 50 stores that are open. That's generally a takeaway and they're only doing delivery and those sort of things. So, it is a bit like the apocalypse. We've actually seen the death of the high street in frozen animation. What happens when we um, suspend that animation and we go back to normal? I would hope that there are a lot of strategy discussions at the moment happening on Zoom about, okay, we've got to go digital. What do we do while we've got the time to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting to look at with the high street is, is this going to be a time when people look at business rates when they start to look at cost of uh, ownership of uh, not just the high street but offices in central london or wherever and say actually we are struggling with profitability let's cut this out altogether now not everyone's lucky enough i mean i've been self-isolating for 10 years plus so it's been quite pleasant really uh, but i live in the countryside and i i can go for walks and i've got used to that lifestyle some people might not have an environment and and, and the office is what they want but will we see the, the likes of top shops and Debenhams, because they're all hitting the, the wall right now financially. Will we just see them close altogether? Are we going to see an accelerated closure of the high street? Well, we've seen a replication of that. We've realized that these companies have about a month of cash of a buffer, that if they're closed for more than a month, they're going to go into administration for a whole lot of reasons. I was predicting a while ago that we would move to a hybrid model where some of these large supermarkets would start to have more concessions, that you'd have more mix of shops in there. It might be that that gets massively... I mean, we, we never predicted this. 
and as futurists, you, you might say Bill, Bill Gates and those Contagion movies saw this all coming, but we didn't know when it was going to happen. So I think, yes, we are going to see some real pressure in those areas. I think though initially, and I'm seeing a lot of sort of community messages saying, why don't we actually prepay for our local pub, our local hairdresser, our local whatever shop, so that when they open again, they've got some cash flow and we can support them. I know for my, my local pub, the first place I'll visit to spend money is my local pub because they've been closed. They've had people off work. I want to support them. And so those sort of organizations will probably remain. But I can't remember the last time I went into a bank. Um, I can't yeah, absolutely. Go to a physical store to, to buy something. Minter. Well, I love that point. Dave Matthews, the uh, singer, did um, an entire program, a one-hour concert in his garage saying, hey, listen, go down and prepay for your beer. So that echoes what you're saying there. What I think this brings up is, is closer maybe to your third P, Andrew, about purpose. And, and the companies that had previously shown more compassion, more interest, more community spirit in advance are going to come out of this a lot better. Whether it's your hairdresser that you love and he's always taking or she is taking care of you or, or you're the person who pulls the pint for you and, and you really miss them. And they, 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 there's, some, there's a real gap you know, there's so many other companies and brands out there that are, they're still flogging spam at you. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to rush out and buy a new t-shirt or whatever from, from them because they don't give a toss. I didn't like them before. I certainly am not going to like them anymore now. I'll name one Sports Direct. <laughs> For example, eh? I mean, you know, talk about lack of empathy. Yes, like, to your point, I wanted to jump in on another thing that Andrew was talking about, which is how this, well, I see what I look, I think is that we've, we've done in, in basically the space of two weeks, a leap forward that would have taken otherwise 10 years. And, and, and the reason why that's the case isn't because all of us, but it's because actually the CEO is doing it. And the CEO has been reading the Financial Times, has been reading all about this digital stuff, has people advising him or her, but has never had to do it. So all of a sudden, my gum, they're at their screen. Where's the on button again? Where's the IT? Oh, shit, there is no IT. Well, maybe it's my son or my daughter. And, and they're actually, well, actually, it's not so bad. I mean, I see your face, you know. Yeah, I got, it, it works. Oh, my gosh. And then this flexibility, I don't have to, I can keep my pajamas on until 9.30. That's not so horrible, actually. Yeah, could you please put yours back on? <laughs> <laughs> go naked <laughs> radio talk show you said but you know so you the, there was a study that was done by zapier last year in november that said that second top reason for wanting to work at home which gives you that flexibility from work to work from wherever you want so it doesn't have to be just at home but so that the, as we have these experiences here we're going to have more and more people understanding the benefits and i did want to say one other thing which is sam to your point before about diversity it turns out, so empathy is great for diversity. It turns out remote work is also great for diversity for two reasons. One, it, it allows you to have people who wouldn't ordinarily have easy access commute to the office. So you can pull in, you know, someone from God knows where, like Sydney or, or, or wherever in the world because of remote. And the second thing is, and it's very much a gender story, is that uh, women, for, for one, tend to say much more than men that they're more productive working from home than having to go to the office. And, and they also, for 24% of them, would say, if I don't have the flexibility, I will quit my job. So you'll end up not favoring the longevity of the women who are working for you if you don't offer that flexibility. 
Yeah, and it, it comes back to valuing them as well then, being able to value their time. Um, and, and I would say that men have, since they're programmed differently, for example, they don't say that they're as productive working from home. They're not quite as used to the sort of the multitask, the, the, the kid who runs in. We, we don't like that so much. We've been programmed to have my, my stiff office and my sort of bureaucratic official space. And, and they're a little bit, you know, I think men, we, <laughs> all three of us, are, are more struggling to have this sort of messier existence than we have than women who have been mothers or, or you know, generally, let's say there's lots of, you know, generalizations in that notion, but who have used to live at home. And I, and I just your other point, Andrew, a lot of men are now all of a sudden realizing, whoa, stay at home parenting. Wow, that's difficult. Stay at home teaching and doing homeschooling. Wow, that's difficult. Yeah. Will this be the end of presenteeism? Will, will we finally, look, when Mar Marissa Mayer took over at Yahoo, the first thing she did was cut home working. So you thought, hang on a minute, this is a woman in charge of the company. Maybe she'd have empathy. Zero, clearly. So she cut that out because she felt that people were maybe slacking, you know, not quite working, doing whatever. How do, how do you end the boss requirement of presenteeism? you know, to be there because they, do you do it by objectives so that it doesn't really matter when you get your work done? If you want to do it between the hours of 3am and 4am, as I was up this morning doing, do you, do you allow that or is it because there is energy from an office environment? Is the office a bad thing or is it a good thing still? Well, I, for sure, sometimes it's, it's the right thing. Take, for example, when you have to do your, your sales predictions and the forecasting and you need you know, various people around the table to be talking for five hours down in granular detail about but why, each why, why wouldn't Zoom work that? My wife is yeah. a, a board director on several PLCs, says that actually she prefers doing her board meetings as chair on Zoom because she's got more control, it's quicker, people are much more focused. Well, so I agree. I mean, obviously, the, I mean, and board meetings I've been doing, of course, now have been by distance, but for having run business. And when you have to have around the table, 18 different people, and it's every line of every skew for every month and so on and so forth. It's the kind of thing just month after month, you can't do for five hours. Sitting in one chair, looking at one screen for a five hour period, you can't operate the same way. So to the idea of this will transform us and all the capability of remote work, I, I think it's an option, but it, it's certainly A, shouldn't be for every company because some companies haven't got it. And if they don't have the right attitude towards it, it will fail as a concept. Andrew. I agree with you, Mint, but I just want to put a <clears throat> counterpoint in there. For the next X weeks or months, they're going to have to do that. So I agree with you. When you've got that really close working around a spreadsheet on a, on a, on a screen, right now they're having to be agile and having to adapt. So maybe, just maybe, Someone will work out how to do it differently. Queen, I use this in my talks. Queen Victoria famously held her household meetings standing up and they took 15 minutes. And I was actually a couple of years ago in Barcelona uh, in a startup environment talking to a large footwear manufacturer, let's call them. And as I was talking out of the corner of my eye, there was a scrum meeting happening. Six people standing in a circle for 15 minutes talking about what they had done, what they needed to do, what the problems were, and they got back on with it. And I said to my my corporates in front of me, guess what's happening over there? I said, oh, standing around chatting. No, 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 they're having a scrum meeting. And they said, we could never do that. Our meetings take three hours. But I think what, I think what this time will do is compress that and people will have to work out how to get their work done in a different way. Now, 
to Minter's point, it might go back to it's really much easier to crowd around a laptop and do that. But I'm just wondering if we're going to have a whole lot of workarounds that will come out of nowhere. A bit like when you have a hackathon. Hey, we've got a business problem. How can we solve it in 24 hours? Maybe, just maybe, innovation will be massively accelerated because someone on the team goes, you know what? There's an easier way of doing this. I know people who are doing lots of manual things. One of my friends has to do an end of day file in notepad to look at all the trades. And I'm just thinking, this is just insane. Why isn't it automated? So I think maybe we're going to have a chance where people say, you know what? That process hasn't worked. Let's find a workaround. But, but to your point, Minter, some things can't do that. I mean, there's some jobs that can't be done remotely. You can't do an NHS job or a fire, fire officer's job remotely. They have to be done in person. I agree with that. I just hope, though, we're going to find a bunch of workarounds that, that you know, you never could have predicted this. The fact that the government in pretty much every country has said, stay at home. They've also basically said, sort it out. Sort out how you get stuff done when you can't be in the same room. There's a, there's a couple of tools that are appearing. One's called Miro or Miro, which is a virtual whiteboard. And I think we'll see more tools come to deal with the challenges that we're facing. <clears throat> the, other, the other thing that I f- think is interesting is prior to CV19, we were having a challenge in this country with getting to see the doctor. That's an example. And several countries had started to trial Zoom or Skype-like meetings with the doctor. I wonder again, you know, looking at changing economic models, will, you know, will that become much more acceptable as an, you know, yeah, I'll just, I'll zoom the doctor, you know, and he'll bank up 10 calls rather than I get in the car and I go and see the grumpy receptionist who eventually gives me a meeting once every six months, you know, I just wonder, will, will the office remain, Andrew? Or will, will it eventually just dissipate into a nothingness? Because there are businesses like the NHS that have to exist. That isn't an office. That's just a, a place. But will, does the office need to exist? What a, what a huge question. I mean, the whole telemedicine, I think, I actually saw a presentation from one of the senior people at Babylon Health, probably the first week into this when we hadn't been isolated, but uh, things still were starting to close. And they said, yes, we're very humble, but we're, we're doing rather well at the moment because people are leading towards that. And I think people are now being comfortable. Again, people, and we talked before we started recording about the generation gap. There are some people where technology is a barrier because they're not sure how to do it. But if the only way you can see a doctor is by turning on your laptop or your iPad and pushing a few buttons and seeing a doctor, I think that will become normal. And maybe, again, the efficiency will improve because a doctor can see so many more many people online and not have to have them come into the surgery. Will the office exist? Yes, it will. I think it might exist in a, in a hybrid way. I mean, there are talks about how the WeWorks and the office groups and the Regis's might fare right now. All of their centers are closed. But back to my earlier point, if I want to work away from the office, but I don't want to work on my kitchen table, where will I work? And can I find a place to work with like-minded people? And I've talked for a while about the, the executive gig economy worker. In fact, all three of us are exec gig workers. We do what we do. We have a different client every day and we get work done wherever it needs to be done. I was predicting that, in large companies, you might have a CFO. He or she says, I don't want to work for you five days a week. I want to do three days here and three days somewhere else. I think we may find now that that becomes more of an option. So we'll still need the P, the place to work. To Minter's point, we'll still need purpose. I think people, I don't know about you, I'm an extrovert, so I like being around people. That's something I enjoy and I I get an energy off it. But I think we won't have massive buildings, you know, knocked down. That won't happen. 
but we'll augment them. It might be that what was a bank trading floor now has a bunch of different companies that are in there and they rent time in there. I was asked four or five months ago by a company in Canada who were building a building in seven years time and said, what should we think about? And rather than going down the normal route of what technology should they use? I said, how flexible can you make the floor plates? Because it might be on a Monday, it's configured this way. And on a Tuesday, it's configured this way. And you have to have access control and document security. But you, you will have people that are gig workers that want to actually work multiple jobs and roles. And so while this won't happen immediately in July, August, or whenever we're out of this, this, this nightmare, I think people will reflect and go, what's my purpose? I, I want to do this, but I want to do it across multiple different companies and I want to be able to do that. And I think if anything that's going to be accelerated is people's desire to, to work in a different way. We will look back on this in 10, 15 years time where our children, our children should look back on what happened in 2020. That was an inflection point. Yeah, I agree with that. I've never lived through a war and the war changed this country and many others. We are in a quasi war where it is so arresting what is going on. We just have to think of different ways of doing things. Wars, wars were great levelers. They, they took the higher and lower class and brought them much closer together in both the First World War and the Second World. Suddenly a bullet would kill an officer just as it would kill a soldier. And it didn't matter whether your name was Lord Fauntleroy or, or John Smith the bullet would still hit you if you were in the way of it. Uh, or Prince Charles. I mean, as far as yeah. everyone. Exactly. Now, I was going to say something else. Throw me. In terms of one of the things I wanted to move on to was, Minta, you, you were talking before you got online about the technology. So I'd like to look at the technologies and move on to some of the economic models for startups, which some of the people that we deal with a lot. So just very briefly, I guess, you did a, a Zoom meeting recently with a thousand delegates, I guess is what we would call them. A friend of ours, Drew Ellis, is doing an online conference as well very shortly. That, that I saw social media world is now doing a, a global online conference. A, do you think, given that you're at the forefront of this, that online conferences will just remain and be the norm people won't want to get on planes won't want to travel but equally what are the challenges of being a speaker with this technology in such a large audience so it's challenging and uh, it does take a uh, shift in skill sets to be able to do a speech with the same kind of engagement and, and thrill and i'd say capture in as far as the audience is concerned I think that human beings and the contact element, whether it's at the office or in a convention, will necessarily stay. So while we've observed two great things that have happened, re-attention to the important role that certain people have in society, like the health practitioners, even the logistics people, and a lot of less well-paid individuals. So hopefully that will also be taken into consideration for the next time. We're also going to and we've also seen, by the way, this lack of pollution in, in all these cities all of a sudden, thanks to this new situation. Yet will we need to embrace, have this, the sound of the pub and the messiness of human life. So I think that that's still going to go on, but people are going to re review that. And, and that, the interesting thing is going to be, well, the first portion of that is going to be related to catching up on the finances. As we're back in business, 
people are, are going to be 50% in the hole in so many areas. Well, how can we cut costs for the next 12 months to catch up with that situation, get some money back in the till? Well, let's cut all these things. We did that. We can, we can cut this and we can, you know, cut down sizes by the way we've had to furlough and, and they've stayed off. And so there's going to be lots of reconfigurations, but at some point we're going to get back into the, the interest of the handshake, if you will, or at least the, the, the notion of being together in the same place. As far as the meetings that I've been doing online, what I can say is that there, you, you need to have in advance, A, a little bit of budget, and two, a little rehearsal element to it. Because as, as if you go with one singular tool, none of them is of sufficient caliber to provide you with the total amount. Secondly, around the tool, let's say the Zoom or whatever the platform you're going to use, you need to have the technology. You can't just go around with a less good mic because, by the way, that irritation level, it might be fine at amateur hour when before it was just, oh, well, let's do it this way. Or, you know, the call in from the airport because the, the taxi was late or whatever. That, that was, you've seen, you know, we've all lived through so many of that. But now moving forward, you're going to have to know where the move button is. You're going to have to have a good quality tech and, and ability to manage these things. And then on top of that, if you're, if you're sticking with just a Zoom, and let's say you have a large audience, well, it's, it's not functional for that in a way that I want it in terms of having maximum amount of, of engagement and interactions. Because if you don't know how to engage outside of making people laugh, you know, it's, it's a struggle. It's not like in a, in a room where you can say, hey, you know, high five your neighbor or, you know, show of hands. These, these are the typical tricks and, you know, which you see in a big conference, but in, in with a thousand people, you don't have the video side. So how do you keep people actively engaged? Well, you have to do things differently. And the platforms as standalones don't provide it. So you need to know and find a, a good mix of platforms. The one I use is called Wizembly which allows for great interactions where the different platforms are a layer underneath the, the assembly. Okay. So let's assume we are now at a post CV-19. I, I still don't think we're going to unself isolate as fast as people think. I think without a, an antivirus to this, I think we'll get a second and third wave and we'll be going back to it. And so I think people have that initial rush out and then there's going to be a rush back i think as people realize that standing on a crowded tube in central london with a whole bunch of people that we don't know who's got it who hasn't who's been tested who hasn't you know is everyone going to have to wear a pink wristband to say they've been tested you know we just don't know uh, so i think we're in this much longer for a uh disparate experiment as you called it andrew so i think it'll be interesting andrew you you had a point yeah so i've already got clients thinking about that so like minter one of my major sources of income is public speaking and there are not a lot of people that want to have me on stage right now because i can't travel i actually had a client book me for an event in madrid in september and i hope that goes ahead but they are planning ahead saying we assume that some people will be there in person and we are now planning for a virtual element so people can dial in, watch the live stream, do Q&A, and to Minta's point, we'll probably know a little bit more about how to make that work. But I think this might be the future, that you don't all have to fly in. While I think, to Minta's point, you have a much better experience when you've got someone that can rev up an audience and, and, and look at the whites of their eyes, and we like to have the business networking afterwards. But let's cater for different learning styles where I can't travel. Either I have a travel restriction or I have a childcare facility requirements at home. 
And, and I think we're going to find that every conference now will have an in-person element and a virtual element, and that will be the norm, and that will be okay, which means that you'll have to adapt to the people in the room and the people out of the room as well. So I've got clients already considering that, and I think that'll become business as usual. Do you, do, do you, on that point, do you have two charging models? I'm just thinking of something out loud in my head there while you were talking. Do you have a, a cheaper model, cost model for turning up in real or more expensive in real? How do, how do you see that? The whole charging for speaking is a whole other podcast topic. I think it's the value that you can do. <laughs> okay. Delivered in person or the value is delivered virtually for catch up. I mean, it's look at the licensing models for films and movies. It has to evolve. The reason why the BBC and ITV only recently have set up BritBox is because they've had to unbundle all of the licensing around. Can you show it on streaming? Can you show it on catch up? I think every business is going to have to say, what is our online model? Because I'm still providing the same value, whether I do it down a Zoom channel or on a stage. But then the, the ongoing things and, and what's the value add. And so by what I often do for clients, I'll be there the night before. I'll go to the dinner, find out what they want out of something. I'll stay for the lunch and ask, answer questions in person. I will also make myself available to do that online. It might mean that we actually charge more because there's more value because you actually get to more people. But my overarching view would be, let's look at what's happened around media licensing and, and streaming rights and those sort of things. And, and our industry will have to evolve as well. Okay. I'm going to move the conversation on one step further now. You're working with uh, Napier Capital, Andrew, at the moment. Of all of the handouts from Rishi, one group didn't get a handout, which was the startup community, the entrepreneurs that we tend to deal with a lot. What are you seeing out there right now, if anything, in the startup world? I mean, I know there's Save Our Startups as a campaign that started, but really, is that going to make any effect? Because fundamentally, it's cash flow that's killing them um, and, and next round of funding. What are you as Napier Capital, or maybe not as Napier Capital, but just generally seeing in the startup world? Well, Namia, what we do is we kind of bridge these high-tech, high-growth startups with large organizations. And I think we're seeing a lot of resilience. I've run six startups over a 12-year period. While we didn't have COVID-19 to cope with, we had cash flow issues. We had companies with long lead cycles. I mean, I used to sell into telcos and we, we talked about the, the telco death spiral waiting 12 months for someone to make a decision. So I think startups naturally are incredibly resilient and the ones that we're dealing with at the moment have all swung their plans into action. They've looked at reducing costs. They've looked at what their runway might be and that's, that's in some way how we advise them. But I think of all the people out there, they are so used to disruption. They are so used to things changing very quickly and being agile that they, while on the, on the sense of it, maybe you're thinking the government haven't been as supportive. They're probably the most agile because they can deal with change really well. And so we're seeing a really uh, vibrant community out there. The government, to be fair, here in the UK and other countries as well, has been very supportive of freelancers, as we all are. And depending on various considerations, we may get some level of assistance from governments. It won't top up our normal pay, and that, that's probably a good thing. But I think that I'm seeing a really healthy uh, view. In fact, I saw a spreadsheet that someone had put together. It's now a Google Doc, so you can actually share it, where they went and basically asked every VC they could find, are you still investing? And looking, running my eye down the hundreds of lines, there were probably 95% of people who said, yep, we're still open for business. We're doing Zoom calls. We are actively investing. I was very, very buoyed by the fact that the, the VC and, and private equity community is in the background just getting on with it. But it, it's a bit harder to raise capital. 
but I'm seeing a very, very strong view that it's, it's a good time to invest. It's a good time to help startups uh, get through the next few months. They always say in the downturn, it's always a good time to invest for the upturn. Minter, are you seeing anything in your world around startups and, 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 and the whole space? Is there anything changed or well, as Andrew I, seems to imply things are, things are in the background getting on with it? Well, I don't have exactly the same view. I certainly don't work with a lot of financiers or VCs, uh, albeit I can imagine it's a great time to invest and get cheap assets because a lot of people are who came into this struggling like so many times you know you, you think that's all you need but you always need more and you go back in and now the valuations the uncertainty is not going to help have high valuations i'm on a, a the board of a, a really interesting consultancy company based out, out of paris and we're discussing how we're doing things and and one of the things that I think is, is important to impress upon people is not to act now for afterwards, is to act now. And imagine this is going to go on, because I think that's the attitude we should have, whether or not it, it does disappear after, let's say, two weeks, two months, or two years. I think it's the attitude of, of using this for the agility and get that mindset of change to go on now and then look at your business model right now, not for after. How, how could this change disrupt your business model and, and how much of your business is subscription and digital and, and is relevant and purpose-led? Because I think purpose is one of the biggest things to throw in as we are all sitting there pondering our lives. Is it really meaningful to sell chewing gum? Is it really meaningful to sell soaps and suds? What's my purpose? And it's okay. You do need to clean, but maybe you can inject more purpose into everything you're doing. And I would add finance. And even you've seen some financiers who have been stepping up like the CEO of Blackstone to this notion of doing purpose. In France last year, they legislated that each company now, big companies need to have a purpose. And I'm thinking that this is a great time to inject purpose into your business. So I, I, th those are some thoughts that I'm thinking about. Obviously, there's survival and there are many companies that are, are actually going to hit rock bottom. And, and so, like Andrew was suggesting before, thinking through if you have the flexibility and the leeway, uh, invest and help out some of your partners because, you know, there's some people like Tiffany St. James who's, who's doing programs online. They're not expensive. Yeah, we should pay for that and participate and help each other out because, you know, what goes around comes around, I think. I feel that there's a Maslow hierarchy of need coming out, not for humans, but for business. You know, as you said, get beyond the survival level. Maybe you add the empathy into it. Maybe then you have the purpose at the top. And then maybe the altruistic level is in the, in the sense that Cabaret's, Bourneville, John Lewis and partners did. They, they, they didn't focus their profitability because of Friedman on the shareholder, but they brought it back down the pyramid to the worker and so that maybe the purpose is to close the gap between the top and the bottom maybe the purpose is to be much more societal maybe the purpose is well i mean clearly simon scenic must be the most sought after speaker in the world right now with his book you know find your why and the infinite game i mean he's been talking about this for a while so will we see economic models change I, I, when i saw you live recently into talking about empathy um, and your book 
I questioned you and said that that's all well and good, but if people still have to focus as a board on the shareholder value and dividends and all of that, then all the other things are thrown out the window until that first point is met. Can we get away from that and maybe build purpose now, do you think? Well, so purpose and empathy, two things. But let's say that the killers of empathy are stress and lack of time. And so if you're stressed because you don't know where your next penny is going to come from, empathy goes out the window. And there are other killers of empathy, which include the fact if you're a right, rich male, then you're empathy challenged. And so to the extent that you are stressed, you feel a lack of time, and you might have these other predispositions, it's going to be very difficult to layer it in. The other thing that I think is interesting at this time is, is you know, if you can build in purpose, that's great. But I think if this continues on, I think we're going to start to see, let's say, there's a term which basically is, you know, the boys from the men get split out. And we're going to see how some people's attitudes and behaviors go downwards and spiral more selfishly. And, and, I, and yet do I believe that staying big, looking at the big picture and, and striving for purpose is going to be the way to drive you through longer term. You may win the short term battle by cutting pennies, cutting corners and making it happen. But the longer term story is where I, you know, I think people need to try to stay tuned with that. I had a brilliant, uh, uh, being a Liverpool fan, uh, as I am, and so is Minter. So, yeah, Andrew, you just got to join us, mate. You just got to yeah. find, become a red. You'll be a happier man altogether. But Liverpool Football Club made a massive mistake. It's, it's, you know, its purpose is well known. It, it talks about you'll never walk alone. It talks about this, this matters more. And yet, when it came to it, a couple of weeks ago, the board furloughed all the non-playing staff. And thankfully, its shareholders, i.e. us, the fans, were up in arms and they, they switched. So I do believe that there will be a, a time when cl- clients or customers turn around to the companies and say, uh-uh, no more, no more are we going to accept your sharp practice, you know, like we said with uh, Sports Direct or Primark or um, any other company that is still spamming us with no empathy to the situation that's currently going on. Moving it forward, who are the winners and losers, do you think, from this period? Now, obviously, we t- I-, I touched on Sports Direct. I think we'll be a loser. But um, in terms of their brand has been tarnished, if that's possible with Mike Ashley. Airbnb, WeWork, Facebook, Zoom, some of the big companies that we talk about. Who are the winners and losers in this, do you think? Andrew? Let's sort of step back from the names you mentioned. So who is already pivoting to digital that was doing it anyway or is already there? So you could say that the Challenger neobanks are going to do really well because they haven't got a branch structure and they can run their bank remotely. So that's, that's probably they're going to do well and people still need to, to buy and sell things and use money. Airbnb, if you read what's happened, they have to support the guests. They've said, we're going to relax our a cancellation policy, but the hosts have said, well, that's not fair because it means I've got no one in my house. And what I'm reading now is people are now flipping back to a normal rental model because the, the Airbnb type model right now doesn't work. I think any company that does not have a significant digital footprint and cannot serve their customers in a digital way is going to be behind the eight ball. I come back to the Primark example. I would hope that someone in Primark central is 
racing out there to get an off-the-shelf e-commerce solution and a, and a, and a logistic solution that they can actually, you know, have got all this stock sitting in their, their stores. At the moment, we know the concept of dark stores. Primark has every single store as a dark store. So that's a warehouse. So can they quickly get some off-the-shelf e-commerce tech and actually start fulfilling things digitally? I, I read about how a lot of people are now coming back and for stores that are closed, they are fulfilling that sort of warehouse function. I, I think also the notion of job sharing, I think in Australia, at least I've seen people that have been furloughed have now gone to work for some of the supermarkets and they've almost donated their, their staff. If you work in an airline one minute in customer care, you might be working in a supermarket the next. I, I think where we, we see the flexibility because we don't know if this is going to happen again. Let's assume this happens the same time again next year and we didn't see the signs and are we, are we ready? So the ones that will survive have a hybrid strategy that is ready for the future. Minter, any, any thoughts on who, who you think in this period have been the winners and losers? Well, I think you're going to, the ones with deep pockets and cash in hand, are certainly going to be benefiting because they're going to be able to keep their employees and not going to have to furlough them and do these harder decisions. I think the ones that are, are more considerate and doing things above and beyond, I, I take LVMH's immediate response to convert their Dior factory in France to make hand sanitizers. Everyone else is now following in. But I th- I'm going to mention, and I want to continue, not that I say for everything they're brilliant, but that kind of courage behind a benevolent dictator, Arnaud, who's the CEO, to, to, to make that kind of a quick decision turnaround, not because he was told to or asked to, but that's the kind of leadership that's going to also stand out after we go through this, I hope, anyway. And it's going to be something that really motivates the employees first. And I think as much as we are customers of it, I think taking care of how your employees are going through this will be uh, a good way to, to continue forward and win. As far as the other models that are going to win and lose, I think to Andrew's point, the ones that uh, get more subscriptions, learn to digitize their things, yet should you not be just focused on the bottom line. I have a few individuals that I know talking, you know, with whom I've been talking, and all they're worried about is how am I going to get more sales? And that orientation of, of issue, it's like, well, how am I going to sell more samples? Well, you know, well, there are other things going on that may be more important than just selling in more shampoos. There's a, there's a brand called Shuemura that was part of L'Oreal, and they continue to send out emails offering travel sizes. Why? What? Is that some pre pre-designed system that's been coded six months ago just to keep doing it. Yeah, and some numbskull hasn't looked at the, the list that's been buffered and continues to sell it. So that's, that, those are examples. For, that's an example of a company, and that was really just a couple of days ago that's doing this. So, Yeah, Amazon. Now, here's an interesting one for you both. You would have said Amazon was a winner in terms of the number of increased deliveries to home and, and everything else they've been doing. And yet last week in New York, they sacked a worker who was complaining about, you know, not having PPE and, and, and you know, protection. And, and, and there's been leaks of the documents that were going around saying they're going to blackmail him, not blackmail him, but, you know, besmirch him. Is that just which story is going to go further forward into your point? You know, when, when we tell the COVID-19 war stories, which story will, will travel further? I mean, so I want to start with, I think that the Amazon issue is well before COVID. 
they have this wonderful mission, at least it's a very well-known mission, to be the most customer-centric company on this earth, right? But that's completely missing the boat because the people who are delivering that customer service, that customer centricity, are the employees. And their issue, I would say, just like an Uber, was that they forgot who's actually delivering the service, the customer experience. Naturally, they've got a great website, they've got a great product, they're very smart, and their customer service is brilliant. The, the challenge is how do you treat your employees in such a silver or white-gloved manner as well, such that they feel super motivated to go above and beyond and, and deliver excellence? Uber missed the plot because what they did, as opposed to Lyft, they took care of their drivers. And, and they're the people that actually deliver the experience. Of course, you got the beautiful app, the nice, you can follow the car coming to you. But the reality is it's the driver. And if it's got, if you can you know, smell the lunch and you don't have the water and they feel they're grumpy about their employer, then the experience is going to be shit. So the, my answer is the Amazon situation for me is just a, a rollover from pre-COVID. Uh, just before Andrew maybe come in, I'm going to use a term that Andrew used. Are, are the fact that Amazon's seeing their warehouses, dark warehouses, they're not customer facing. In fact, Bezos would rather get rid of the people in those warehouses and just have it totally automated. So he doesn't really care about those people in the same way Uber would rather have self-driving cars and not care about those people. So they're not the customer value proposition that those two companies value going forward. So maybe that explains why they don't treat them so well. Andrew? Yeah, look at the, the friction point. Where do we interface with the company? It's the drivers, it's the, the Uber drivers, the, the Amazon delivery people. I think this is going to show up some cracks in the system that we are, just as we want to support our local businesses, we're now, you know, the superheroes are people in the NHS. The superheroes, the people that are in the chemist store, the superheroes are the people in the takeaway store that are basically risking their lives to deliver a service. And so we're going to see those frontline people as our heroes. And I think we will never look at someone in a minimum uh, wage job again, because when it came to, to the foot soldiers needing to, to supply uh, the community, they, they kept going. So back to the, 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 those three P's, the purpose and the people, that is what's going to become really, really important. And I think if you could have an empathy value, I'm sure Minter would agree that at some stage in the future, you will have a P&L item called empathy just as you have brand value. Uh, what's the brand worth? How empathetic is the company? Right now, the low value empathy companies are being shown up. Now, that makes great news and it, it, it you know, fills in between the COVID-19 stories. But I think, again, if we have a memory about who do we remember the most? Number one is, is in, this, in the UK, at least the NHS. We remember those, those troops that just basically soldiered on because that was their purpose, to save lives and, and, and fix people. I think we will have a much better appreciation of those frontline workers. And if they don't get treated well by the brand they work for, we'll move somewhere else. I think at the moment, Amazon has such a monopoly in most countries, it's hard to, to, to switch. But I think maybe if some of these uh, existing retailers get their act together and, and become more digitally savvy, maybe we'll have an option. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I think that'll be, I think, when you're up on stage talking to large corporates and telling these stories post who who you know who did the best and who didn't now the government is the last bit uh, before i go on one of your p's andrew that isn't in there that i was curious is is profit but and you know 
that that doesn't appear in your piece and is that out of choice or is that a, just a an oversight sorry before i move on to government um well the overarching i think that the fourth p is actually pay that the future of work is is for a, and this comes sort of from an employee so the future of my work is about people place purpose and payment will you pay me what i think i'm worth i don't care about well okay i not that i don't care I'm disconnected from the profit of an organization. As long as they can pay me and are profitable, they will pay me. So that fourth P is in there. I just wonder whether, unless you're in a John Lewis, where you actually are a shareholder of the organization and to you it matters that someone will walk you across the store to find something because they own part of the business. What we might find, I'm just thinking aloud to your point, we may find more partner level organizations like the John Lewis partnership where I have a stake in the business. And so then to your point, profit becomes important because the future of work is actually having a share in the business. Mm. And so if we're having the bad Amazon experience that we talked about a few moments ago as a shareholder, I want that to be fixed and I will fix that. So maybe that's the future of work that we are more heavily involved in the profit. Okay. Now government, we, we talk about the NHS being the superheroes of, of this period. And, you know, I think Italy lost 72 doctors so far, you know, and, and, and that's a horrible count. I don't know how many we've done in this country. I know that the number is rising. But last year, the Tory government, and it's not a political thing because it could have been a Labour Party who would have done the same maybe, cheered in the House of Commons when they overturned the vote to increase pay for the police, the NHS, Will we see the Tories take on socialist policies and actually try and reward the staff, the nurses and everyone else? Because the first thing I know they've done is they've only extended the visas for nurses and doctors who they're about to kick out practically. They were just about to kick them all out, but they realise they need them for another year. So they've only done it for one year. Uh, do you genuinely think the government's going to make a real change or are they just going to paper over it for another year while we're all got it front and center and then COVID-19 goes and we go back. Where do you think government's going to play a role in all of this? Well, if ever you needed evidence that the, the way the national health service in England is run is broken, Matt Hancock is seeing as the, as the health minister is seeing firsthand why it needs to be better funded. If the NHS isn't the best funded health system in the world after this, I think we're going to probably have people marching on parliament. I think there is such community support. For those listening around the world, the last two Thursdays, we've had a clap for the carers where literally at eight o'clock you have had for a whole minute entire communities banging pots and clapping wherever you are. You can, it's an overwhelming sense of pride about what they're doing. So I think you will have uh, pressure from, from people who vote to to fund that because they've seen that they've literally saved lives. Go back to the war analogy. Who would want to underfund the military during a world war. Uh, yeah, but post the world war and something that Minter mentioned at the beginning, you know, the, when I was in the army, we, we had rifles that didn't work under conditions. We had wet boots. We had webbing that was post world war two, you know, and then it came to literally, uh, I think the British army ended up using American equipment in a war zone because we just didn't have the right equipment. So, it has been a case where the British government talks big publicly and privately does very little. And the, the Tory government has had a, an agenda, whether they publicly admit it or not, to privatise large elements of the NHS. So it's going to have to be a massive swing round in their internal thinking 
uh, it's just a fascinating thing. I think will will we see Corbyn's, as I think you called it, Andrew, wet dream, you know, of a socialist country? I mean, I think I was listening to a, a, another podcast where they're saying America, with its 2.7 trillion investment into the economy, fundamentally the government owns most of business, is now become a national socialist country in terms of it nationalised much of businesses by owning it. Will they have to then vest that ownership over time, like we did with RBS, or will they keep it? You know, will this country see finally the the return of critical services? Will we see electricity, rail? Most of the railway companies are owned by state governments of another country. You know, overnight, about two weeks ago, the government took back control of all the rail franchises. So at the moment, did they? Okay. they own every rail network in, in, in the UK. The answer is we don't know. But I think, again, this has been such an aberration, such a, a shock to the system, every system, that, again, if, if I'm in the government, they're probably scrambling. They, they're human beings. Our prime minister is in intensive care. These are people that are being asked to make monumental decisions as human beings while they're massively overloaded, as are doctors and nurses in the NHS. So back to Minter's point about empathy, how can we make critical decisions when we have someone's foot on our neck? for the next several months. So I would hope that the powers that be are being well advised and they're thinking for the future. The fact that the Chancellor almost overnight said we're going to drop a bunch of money to support companies, it's never been done before. They've, they've had to act decisively. They've had to work in a very agile way. When we step back and look at this, no government has ever made that decision that quickly. They had to, they were forced to. So can we apply that thinking heaven forbid if this ever happens again how do we have that radical thinking that everyone says yeah we've just got to do it even the opposition here have basically stepped back and said we'll just let you get on with it because we don't know what's going to happen final thoughts gentlemen then so uh, yeah. i did a survey that asked people online whether whether, whether they thought the most lasting effect was and, and the least well answered was politics i think that politics in general will have kind of a, a sea a tsunami effect on, on how politics is run. The issue, of course, is that in democracies, they still have to pay the piper, which is the electorate. And so maybe they will be uh, demonstrations. But I also think we need to caveat because it's possible we also start seeing rioting and, and uh, civil unrest. And that's going to change the nature of this whole conversation. And, you know, purpose can go out the window at a second because we have to survive and tribalism will come back. And, and it's certainly been... Uh, a, a facet of dem democratic politicians around the world, this whole idea of populism. The other thing which I, as a personal conviction, have with regard to government is right after the war or the, you know, this crisis, we're going to super invest in masks. And of course, we may need the next year, but we're going to stockpile everything we need. And as has been happening in this crisis, a lot of people who actually have existing conditions and existing operations are, are, are suffering. I've had a few friends pass away and, and it's been said that part of that is also because of the situation and nothing to do with COVID, at least as far as their death is concerned. And the, and the way people are, are, are going to react to this is going to be monumental. Sure, we should be looking at nurses, but we should also be looking at the immigration of nurses because there are plenty of countries in the world that don't have nurses. And then if you want to look at the healthcare system, you also need to think of the bigger system. You mentioned America just now, Sam, where, which has the largest 
percentage of GDP dedicated to healthcare and yet doesn't have social healthcare. 16% of the GDP is in, is in healthcare. And, and so the issue there is if you don't look at the, the real issue, which is malpractice and the way the lawyers run that. My sister, who's a cardiopulmonary critical care specialist in Baltimore, has a insurance tab of a quarter of a million dollars to pay every year. That's just in case she didn't write, read the small print, essentially. And, and, and I think she, she would warrant me on this point. So you can't just single-handedly do that. And I, and I don't actually have a lot of confidence, as smart as these people are, in their ability to handle the pressure to stockpile masks. That's just a, an analogy. And, 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 and yet have the full system, because you need to look at the full system. You need to tackle in America lobbies and the, the whole legal framework in, in France, there's another situation. Every country has a series of different situations and it's going to be a difficult task. And hopefully, my point, my last takeaway is we can inject more business acumen, not the Donald Trump variety, but more a Michael Bloomberg variety or a Howard Schultz variety into, into government. Andrew, final points from you. Go back to what I said initially, that disruption is a wonderful opportunity for change. We cannot go back to the way it's always been something practical, keep a journal, whether it be online, day one is my journal app of choice or a, or a piece of paper, or a Moleskine notebook, write down how you're feeling, how things are working out for you from a work point of view, what you would like to change. Because we don't want to forget about this. We race back to the office on that crammed tube once again, and we forget what it was like. We need to remember this time and we need to effect real change. Okay. Now that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Where can people find you? Minta, how can they find you? How can they get in contact with you if they want to? Where can they read more about you? My home online is minterdial.com where you can find out about my books, my film, and hopefully the new one coming out at the new end of the year on Leadership You Lead. Otherwise, uh, oh, and by the way, on my blog, I've, I've been writing about how to do a family reunion, how to do a podcast. I've been trying to provide what I hope are useful guides and, and thoughts about how to deal with this crisis and otherwise m dial on twitter thanks for having me on sam it's been a pleasure uh, my pleasure's all mine thank you andrew likewise where can everyone find you yeah sam thanks again for having me on um i'm a futurist in london so my web address is futurist.london i also have a podcast search for the practical futurist podcast on your favorite app and i'm on twitter at andrew grill but i would love to interact with your your listeners and degree, disagree with what we have had to say. I mean, I think everyone is literally in the same boat. And I would love to have some people reach out and, and let me know what they're thinking. Uh, I have to just tell you, in my top 10 podcasts, you both are featured. So uh, yeah. on my website, you are in my top 10 podcasts. So yeah. anyone wants to know my other eight, they can go and find it on my website. But thank I will you, tell you what they are. Now, on that note, uh, all I will say is thank you very much, gentlemen. We will catch up in real world terms at some point hopefully soon until then stay safe speak to you all next week take care bye-bye thank you sam that show was amazing don't forget to visit samtalks.technology to discover more great shows and interviews see you next week same time same place